You know, in previous weeks, uh, we've been blessed with just great messages on how Peter has addressed specific groups within the church on how they should live in different contexts to which they are called to. But in today's message, Peter kind of, he kind of takes a step back, he takes a step back, and instead he presents to us a more a more general but conclusive answer to this big question. He, in one sense, he gives us the essence, the concentrate, the distilled version of the answer to this question. How then shall we live and why? For the uh, note-takers uh, amongst us, I have titled today's message, Rightly Relating to all people, rightly relating to all people. Uh, so let's turn our Bibles now to First Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, Or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you accord that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceits. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. How about we start our time with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father and gracious God, we just thank you for your word, which is just so applicable to our lives. We thank you for the last few weeks where we've been given specific instruction on how to live in different contexts of our lives. But we also thank you for this word that we've just read right now, which sets out the radical Christian ethic on how we are to relate to all people. And so, Father, we just pray that as we hear your word preached today, that it won't just stimulate or titillate our minds, but that we, as we go out into, the, into our weeks, into our lives, that you would transform the actual way that we live. For your glory, we pray. Amen. Let me uh, ask you all a question. What kind of decision maker are you? Are you a shoot from the hip kind of decision maker? Quick, snappy, decisive, close enough is good enough kind of decision maker? Or are you a, a carefully, carefully kind of take aim kind of decision maker? Slow and meticulous, precision is key kind of decision maker. Well, for myself, I'm definitely in the latter camp. You can ask Ivy all about it. I'm constantly meandering back and forth over the data, looking at all the different options available, weighing up the risk and the reward. I remember one time I was uh, on a business trip, and I wanted to come back from the trip bearing gifts for Ivy, my dear Ivy, and so I thought I would get her a bottle of perfume. So after work, I went to the department store, 
But lo and behold, I spent pretty much like three hours in that department store because I couldn't decide which perfume to buy. You know, the poor shop assistant uh, ended up pulling out, it was very fascinating, she pulled out these fascinatingly large books which had these like intricate family trees of all the different fragrances on the market and they're all kind of linked like a family tree and they were grouped in terms of similarities of ingredients and fragrance subgroups. It was helpful but not helpful, if you know what I mean. It just opened for me just a whole new world of data which I then felt compelled to analyse. So when I find myself in this state of analysis paralysis, I've actually quite, I found it quite helpful to apply a, a framework that a theologian by the name of John Frame has, has come up with. It's a big name, don't worry about it, but it's called triperspectivalism. Uh, don't worry about all the big words I'm going to say right now, but all you need to know is in this framework that he comes up with, He says that we must consider things from three different perspectives. Firstly is what he calls the normative perspective. This perspective takes into account what we believe to be fundamentally true, right? What we believe to be fundamentally true. Secondly, he he says that we must consider the situational perspective. This perspective takes into account the context that we find ourselves in the facts about the situation um, that we find ourselves in. And lastly, he says that we must take into, into account the existential perspective. This perspective takes into account our subjective experiences, our preferences, our desires. You know, this framework he applies to many different areas of theology, including, for example, understanding how Christ fulfills the three different Old Testament offices of king, prophet, and priest. But it can also be applied to ethical questions, to everyday life decisions, the key decisions that we make in our life. Let me give you an example. Just say you're a teacher, lots of teachers here, right? And you've been offered a job at a new school, and you're wondering whether you should take the job. Uh, From the normative perspective you really appreciate and you really understand, you fundamentally believe it's true and and good the way the school has structured its learning environment. You fundamentally agree with the school's pedagogy. From the existential perspective, you feel that you have a lot that you can learn and you're excited about the growth opportunities that this new role brings. However, from a situational perspective, the school is over an hour's drive away and you're going to get paid less than you currently are. You see, this tri-perspectival approach gives you the clarity of three different angles of considering a life decision. In this example, it isn't a hands-down, clear-cut answer, is it? But in today's passage, Peter presents to us the essence of how we should rightly relate to all people, and he provides three different but compelling perspectives on why we must live this way, why we must live this way. Accordingly, I have, as you guessed, three points to the sermon. Number one, 
our calling, which gives us the situational perspective, our longing, which gives us the existential perspective, and finally, our knowing, which gives us the normative perspective. Our calling, our longing, and our knowing. Now, I'm very aware that this has been a long and dense introduction, but, but if there's one thing that I pray that you would take home, and not only take home, but live out in your life today, it is this. It is this. We must rightly relate to all people, even those who do evil to us, because it is our calling, because it is an expression of our longing, and because it corresponds to our knowing. We must rightly relate to all people, even those who do evil to us, because it is our calling, because it is an expression of our longing, and because it corresponds to our knowing. Okay, point number one. Our calling. So first of all, brothers and sisters, we are to bless each other and even those who do evil because this, this is our calling. Read with me again verses 8 to 9. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not pay, uh, repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, Bless, for to this, to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. You see, brothers and sisters, this is our calling. Yes, it's true that we have been called out of the darkness into the marvelous light. First Peter chapter two verse nine. And yes, it's true that we've been called to His eternal glory in Christ. First Peter chapter five verse ten. Yes, our calling undoubtedly involves a positional shift in our vertical relationship with God, but our calling in this life also includes a dispositional shift in our horizontal relationships with one another. You know, in the last few weeks, we have seen how Peter addressed specific groups of people within the church. He's, he's talked to servants He's talked to wives. He's talked to husbands. But then Peter writes here, finally, all of you, all of you, he completely shuts off the possibility of us this morning saying to ourselves, uh, this doesn't apply to me. He says, all of you. On top of this, remember who Peter is writing to in this letter. He's writing to a group of Christians that are gathered in various local churches scattered across Asia Minor. Furthermore, he's writing to a people who face opposition from the world because of their faith in Christ. Though the geography may have changed, the context, the situation that we find ourselves in today is pretty much the same, isn't it? We are people who are part of a local church living in a world that is still opposed to Christianity. To put it bluntly, until that glorious day when we gathered, not no longer as local churches, but in one great multitude from every nation and tribe and language and people, what Peter is writing to us here will continue to be contextually relevant to us. In fact, everything that Peter says from this point on is your calling in this life. They are not 
optional extras to the Christian life. They are part and parcel of your calling as homebound exiles. So then what exactly is the nature of this calling? Well, Peter gives us five virtues which paint what this calling looks like, particularly in the context of the church, and particularly so the local church. Let me add that it's helpful to notice that grammatically, that these five virtues, if you kind of like uh, visualize it, can be organized like a pyramid. So firstly, you have unity of mind at the bottom level, then on the next level up, you've got sympathy, then at the top of the pyramid, you've got brotherly love, then coming down on the other side, you've got a tender heart, and then a humble mind. Just keep that picture in your mind for a second. So firstly, Peter implores us to have a unity of mind. You know, in the church of God that spans across both space and through history, through time, there is such a deep and wide common ground for us to have unity of mind. Our belief in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, our belief in Jesus Christ, his only Son and our Lord, that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried, that he descended into the dead and on the third day rose again and ascended into heaven and is seated now at the right hand of the Father that he will return to judge the living and the dead. Our common belief in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead, and the life everlasting. Oh, friends, this is the rich and fertile ground of unity that we stand on with all the church. And this unity should all the more be manifest, tangibly manifest when we gather as a local church. Friends, it it doesn't mean that we have to have exactly the same opinions about everything. But what it does mean is that we should have a, a disposition, an inclination, an instinct to be agreeable on as much as possible. We are called to be a people whose inclination is always towards rejoicing in the common things of our faith and avoiding the temptation of overplaying differences of opinion. But how exactly is this unity of mind achieved? What does it it look like in practice? Well, remember that pyramid that I mentioned before? On the same level as unity of mind is the fifth and corresponding virtue of, of of a humble mind. In order to cultivate a culture in our midst where we have unity of mind, we must each have a humility of mind, a posture in our lives where we do not exalt ourselves or our opinions above one another, but have a a meek and lowly disposition, just like our Lord Jesus. Now, for all the thinkers in the room, for all of you who have a T in your Myers-Briggs profile, you must be quite happy that the two virtues that I've spoken about concerns the mind, to have unity of mind and to be humble-minded. But Peter's not just concerned about the way that we think. In our interactions with one another, as we move up that pyramid, he also addresses the way that we are 
to feel towards one another. You know, it's one thing to command people the way to think, but he's commanding us to have an affection, to have an emotion. Now, that's, that's something. This calling upon our lives is for the entirety of who we are, not just our thinking, but our feeling, not just our heads, but our heart as well. And so Peter also includes in the list to have sympathy or to be sympathetic. In the Greek, it's literally translated to, to, to be feeling with, to feel with one another, both our sufferings and both our rejoicings, seeking the good of others, but also entering into each other's needs and concerns. And you know, this is exactly what the Lord Jesus did for us, didn't he? It's spoken of in the book of Hebrews, and it says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus became a man, and as our high priest, he came down to sympathize, to come alongside, to feel exactly how we feel in our weakness and in our temptation. He is the only person who is able to completely say to us in our pain, in our suffering, in our weaknesses, friend, I know exactly how you feel. And though none of us will ever be as sympathetic as the Lord Jesus Christ, we should still be eager, eager to grow in our willingness and our ability to bear one another's burdens, to feel, to actually feel one another's joys and sorrows. But again, sympathy is not mentioned again in isolation, is it? I draw your attention to the pyramid I mentioned earlier, coupled with sympathy is that fourth and corresponding characteristic that is mentioned, a tender heart, a tender heart. Uh, this literally means a heart that's, that's soft to touch. It's soft to touch. A compassionate heart, the very opposite of a calloused and hard heart, unmoved by the joys and the pains of others in the church. So So many times, so many times we get a glimpse of the tender heart of God, the compassionate heart of God in the Gospels, don't we? So often when Jesus saw the crowds, when Jesus saw the sick, when Jesus saw the lame, when Jesus saw the blind, when Jesus saw the deaf, deaf, what are we told that he had? It says he had compassion. He had a tender heart for them. When the prodigal son returned home, his father had what? His father had compassion, a tender heart, and ran and embraced him. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, both the priest and the Levite see the man who is stripped, the man who is beaten and lying half dead on the side of the road, but their hearts are hardened and they pass by on the other side. But the Samaritan, who had no legal who had no social obligation to help, what did he have instead? He had compassion. He had a tender heart for the wounded man. Oh, friends, all of these accounts in the gospel give us an image of the tender heart of God towards us, a heart that caused him to stop, to approach us, to bind us 
bind up our wounds, to pay the cost for us to be fully healed. And church, this same compassionate, tender heart is what we have been called to towards one another. And, you know, I've only been at this church for only two years, but I've seen so many instances, so many instances of this compassionate tenderness in people's hearts, particularly in the context of gospel communities, serving, coming alongside one another. It has just been a lesson in itself, just observing how you are living this out. Then lastly, at the top of the pyramid lies the final but the greatest virtue that Peter mentions, the simple but the timeless core for us to have brotherly love. This is what Karen Jobes, a commentator, helpfully writes. The emphasis on brotherly love often falls on love rather than on brother, which sometimes leads to a misunderstanding that affection is more important than the resolve to do what is to do right by others with whom we are substantially related by faith in Christ. The emphasis on brother here is, is quite helpful, isn't it? The sibling analogy is very helpful. I find it very helpful. Your feelings, my feelings towards my blood siblings, to be honest, they ebb and they flow. Hi, Serena. Um, they ebb and they flow um, on any given day. Sometimes your heart is just full for your siblings, isn't it? But on other days, your feelings might ebb. They might ebb and you might just find yourself quite annoyed at them. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, my sister and I, um, we would often bicker and argue and fight when we were younger, but even when we were on colder-than-usual terms, she would stick up for me if someone said something about me, and I would quickly do likewise for her. You see, at the end of the day, we remain brothers and sisters in Christ, and though we may not always have those warm and gooey feelings of love in our heart, we are always, always called to the duties of love, to do what is right and good towards one another. Now, before I move on to verse 9, which covers how we are to be with all people, not just within the context of the church, let me just say that these five virtues that I've spoken of should characterize our relationships here at church. But you might be sitting here and you might be thinking, I'm not really sure my life demonstrates much of these virtues. But I'm also not sure that my life doesn't demonstrate these virtues. I feel that I'm neither here nor there, to which I would encourage you to relationally press in deeper into church life. When you stay at the periphery, when you stay at the edges of church life with minimal relational contact with others in the church, it's very difficult to get those necessary opportunities to see these virtues develop and grow and flourish in your life. Also try to mix with people more widely than those you're normally comfortable with. Interact with people from different stages of life, different industries of work, different cultures from you, you know, different interests from you. And I assure you that as you do this, there will be ample opportunities for you to grow in these virtues. 
And let me give a quick plug to gospel communities. This is an incubator for these virtues in your life. Don't pull yourself out of these contexts, these good structures that have been established for you to develop these virtues in your life. Okay, let's now move on to verse 9, which Peter gives us as a principle to apply, not just within the church family, but with all our relationships, all our interactions to all people. Peter writes, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless to which, uh, for, this, for to this you were called. You know, um, a couple of months back, uh, Nathan uh, was... He was kind of having a bit of a hard time at school. There was, um, and this is just, I think, just part and parcel of, of, of entering into school life. Uh, he had this particular child uh, who um, he was having a little bit of trouble with. This particular child uh, once dragged Nathan out of the playground and into an out-of-bounds area of the school and then shut the gate on him. So he couldn't get back in. Obviously, he was a little bit distraught about this. He also once grabbed Nathan's lunch and threw it onto the ground. So Nathan had no lunch uh, for that day. And, you know, as, as you can imagine, as parents, we're a little bit uneasy about this. We're thinking, oh, wh- how, do we, how do we respond to this? Uh, well, one evening, as part of our nightly bedtime routine, each of the kids, well, really Nathan and Abigail, we would encourage them to pray. And we would normally use the template, and I've mentioned this in the past, of thank you, sorry, and please. But you know what, what you have to understand is that the please part of the prayer is the last part of the prayer. And prayer, bedtime prayer, is the last thing that we do before we tuck them into bed. So in my mind, after a long dinner, after a long bath time, and after a long bedtime routine, when we are at bedtime prayers, we're on the home stretch. We're on the home stretch. They're about to go to sleep. So we get to the please part of the prayer, and I'm like, so Nathan, you know, what would you like to say please for to God today? Nathan, uh, he pauses for a while. He takes his time, and I'm just like, oh, bedtime. And, 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 I'm, and, and he's like, oh, you know, so-and-so, as in this kid at school who he's um, had a bit of trouble with, he's, he's sick today, and he's not at school and I'm like tapping my feet. Like, um, I'm thinking to myself, hey, buddy, you're not listening to me. This is not the thank you part of the prayer that we're at. <laughs> and so I go back to him, and I'm like, Nathan, 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 just, just listen. What would you like to say please for to God today? And then he takes me by complete surprise, right? Because he's thinking about this. He goes, oh, Dad, I just... I just want to pray for so-and-so and, and, and ask you, God, to please make him feel better so he can come back to school. You know, immediately, that was a God moment. I was cut to the heart. I was cut to the heart. In a single sentence, my dear son rebuked his sinful father and so beautifully reflected the heart of Christ. And you know, in the very same way, we are called by Peter to relate to all people in this way, with a heart to bless them, even when they do evil against us. Again, church, this is not an optional extra to the church, to the Christian life, but it is our designated path 
in this life. You know, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, taking upon himself the righteous anger for our sin, even as the soldiers, the scribes, the chief priests mocked him, even as those who passed by him derided him, even those who were crucified with him reviled him, Jesus still prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, at the cross, Jesus breaks once and for all this cycle of retaliation. And he sets in motion an, an unstoppable wave of grace and mercy. Think about, think about for a second what happens just a short time later. A group of Pharisees, a group of angry Pharisees, including a, name, a, a, a man by the name of Saul, they gather together, they stone to death a Christian by the name of Stephen because he is preaching Christ to them. Yet out of all the words, out of the full vocabulary that was at his disposal, Stephen could have shouted as he died. He chose not words of self-defense, nor words of vengeance, but he shouted out because he recognized his calling as a Christian. He shouted out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. In other words, so great was his understanding of this powerful principle of blessing, even in the face of cursing, that his final and enduring plea to God was that for those who were murdering, who were murdering him, that they may be blessed to the highest, that they may be blessed with life. And this is the really sweet part of it. The Lord, the Lord who is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love, he allowed that wave of grace and mercy which began at the cross to continue turning the world upside down. God answered Stephen's prayer and transformed the Pharisee Saul into the person we now know as the Apostle Paul. Brothers and sisters, this is not just the calling that God has for super-Christians like Stephen. Peter tells us right here in this passage that this call to respond to evil with blessing is for ordinary Christians, ordinary Christians like me and you. Okay, point number two, our longing, our longing. Brothers and sisters, this kind of living is not just our calling. It's not just our calling, but it's actually our longing too. To use the jargon from the tri-perspectival approach, Peter now gives us the existential reason for living in this way. He gives us the subjective, the experiential reason. He shows us that this way of living is an outworking of our own experience. It is an expression of our own deepest desires. Read with me 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 11. For whoever desires to live life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Peter here is quoting from Psalm 34 verses 12 to 16, but this is actually not the first time that he quotes from Psalm 34 
in this epistle. In fact, Peter quotes from this psalm back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, when he writes, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This phrase comes from Psalm 34 as well. And so when we take these two references from Psalm 34 and we put them together, this is what Peter is basically saying to us. He's saying, you, yourselves, you have been people who have been born again to a living hope. And therefore, you are people who have indeed tasted tasted and seen that the Lord is good. This is your very own experience. You once lived a life where you gave God, you, you, you returned to God evil for his good. And he had every right to repay your evil t- with evil, but he didn't. At the cross, at the cross and at the cost of his only begotten son, he chose instead to bless you. You have now tasted the sweetness of being brought back into a loving relationship with the one who created you. You now have vividly seen the goodness of God in your life. On top of this, you also know that your experience of this goodness in this life here and now, when you experience it on earth, this is just a mere entree of the best that is yet to come. And so your soul, if you have tasted this, your soul desires for more of this, doesn't it? You long to see more of those good days. Therefore, therefore, Peter says, let every action in your life, every action, let every word that proceeds from your mouth be consistent with your own experience of grace. In other words, just as you have experienced mercy and grace, likewise, now in all your relationships with every other person, may it be marked with that same fragrance of grace. Peter then gives us three categories, really helpful categories, that help us live out this reality in the here and now. Firstly, he says, let him keep his tongue from evil and from speaking deceit. This instruction can be simply summarized as stop, stop. And particularly so with regards to our tongue. And I know so well, it is so, my tongue is so prone to strike back, to curse back, to backbite, to gossip, to slander, to overuse sarcasm, to passive aggressive comments. In the face of an insult, we find ourselves often searching for the right words to respond with, don't we? But here, Peter gives us the wisdom that it's often better simply to stop. Brothers and sisters, are there any situations where what you need to do is simply just stop? Where you find the more that you speak, the hotter the blaze of animosity burns, in which case... It's time to stop. Secondly, let him turn away from evil and do good. This instruction, again, can be simply summarized as turn or to repent. It gives the sense of a a violent, swerving U-turn. When we see that we are not living in a way that is blessing others, but instead that we find ourselves returning evil for evil, we must violently turn from that course of action. Brothers and sisters, are there situations where you are running headlong towards a tit-for-tat conflict? It's time to turn 
And lastly, let him seek peace and pursue it. This instruction can be simply summarized as go, go. It's an active and relentless verb, an unstoppable desire to, to bring peace to bring blessing into a situation of hostility. You know, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we get a glimpse of Jesus' heart for this in his pursuit of peace. It says in that verse, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face. He set his face towards Jerusalem. He set his face towards Jerusalem. He set his eyes upon the cross. He was resolute to bring peace between God and man And he pursued it to the very end, even unto death. Brothers and sisters, are there situations where you have left a broken relationship festering for far too long? Oh, friend, it's time to go. It's time to go to seek peace and pursue it, just as the Lord your God has pursued you. Finally, point number three. Our knowing. To be a blessing to all people, including those who do evil to us, is not just our calling. It's not just an expression of our longing, but it also corresponds to our knowing. Again, to put it in the jargon of the triperspectival approach, it aligns with our normative understanding of reality, what we fundamentally believe to be true. Read with me verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In this final verse of this section, Peter closes out his encouragement for us to rightly relate to all people by resting it upon what we know to be fundamentally true about the nature of God. That being that God grants life, or as it says in verse 12, uh, metaphorically, the attention of his eyes and his ears are towards those who are righteous. And he allows those to, ex- uh, allows those to experience death, or as it says, verse 12, the turning away of his face for those who, who persist in evil. Now, you know, commentators, they've debated back and forth as to whether these truths are ultimately true only in eternity or are they true in terms of the here and now? In other words, is it true that in the life to come, is this true in the life to come or is it true in the life here and now? Well, these are my thoughts. I think that in line with the whole you know, thrust of the book of 1 Peter, there is no doubt that these that this truth will be ultimately true in eternity. Those who live out this radical Christian ethic of relating rightly to all people will inherit the blessing of eternal life. And those who do not live out their lives according to this radical Christian ethic, their eternal portion will be found in the horrific shadow of the turning away of the Lord's face. But... But I also think that there is a fundamental truth that spills over into the here and now. And the reason I think that this is the case is because of Dave's sermon 
last week. Remember from last week's passage that if you do not live in an understanding way with your wife, remember what happens? Our prayers are hindered. Notice this is a direct parallel to verse 12 when it says that God's ears are open to their prayer. Yes, when we live out this radical Christian ethic, we will inherit the blessing of an uninterrupted, unfettered communion with God for all eternity in the age to come. But, but should we live in an evil way, say, living in a harsh way with our wives or returning evil for evil, we should not be surprised that God will temporarily interrupt our communion with him in the here and now. One way to think about this fundamental truth is that God, in the kindness of his fatherly discipline, lets us at times experience for a season of our life, for a moment of time, his turning his face away, such that we may see the error of our ways and that we quickly course correct our lives to stop, to turn, and to walk again in the path of life. So there we have it, three different perspectives for why it is critical that we relate rightly to all people, both in the church and even to those who do evil to us. Number one, because it is our, it is our calling, because it's the very context in which we find ourselves as part of the church in this world. Number two, because it is an expression of our longings and an outworking of our very own experience of the grace and mercy of God. And number three, because it is grounded in our knowing that God is a righteous God. But you know, as I close, I just want to add one final word of clarification and encouragement. In my last point, um, I said that those who live out this radical Christian ethic of relating rightly to all people will inherit the blessing of eternal life. And those who do not live out their lives according to this radical Christian ethic their eternal portion will be found in the horrific shadow of the turning away of the Lord's face. You know, some of you, if not many of you, given our Protestant sensibilities, may have cringed when I said this. You might be thinking, Austin, are you preaching salvation by works? To which my emphatic answer is no. You know, instead, please understand what I've said in the context of the bigger picture of 1 Peter. We must remember that these five verses that we've looked at today sits in the middle of a letter that is absolutely filled with references of God's initiative and sustaining power in our salvation. Chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 23. Chapter 2, verse 4. These are all verses, and I could go on, that speak of God's initiating power and sustaining grace in our lives as Christians. And so the truth that I want to leave you with is this. Each and every one of you here who has been born again to a living hope will, will assuredly live out this radical Christian ethic in your life. We won't do it perfectly, but if we are born again of God, 
the sum total of our lives here on earth, will testify that everything that I have preached today will surely be a characteristic feature of our lives. But on the flip side of the same coin, and I, and I pray that there not be a single soul in the room that this applies to, is the sobering reality is a sobering reality that there will be some at the end of their lives who never embraced brotherly love, nor did they ever leave their life of returning evil for evil. And the truth of the matter is, they never really were born again to a living hope. In other words, there never really was a calling. They never really tasted the longing. They never really grasped the knowing. But for us who indeed are called, who indeed have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, this call to the radical Christian ethic, as much as it is something that we should do, rest assured, saints, it is something by God's grace that you will do because God has made it your calling, because God has made it your longing, And because God has made it your knowing. Let us close in prayer. Father God, you are so, so gracious to us. You have made us, you have caused us to be born again to a living hope. And part of that calling, Lord, we thank you, is a transformation in the way in which we relate to one another as church family, but also how we relate in the face of evil. And we thank you that we do not do this by our own strength. This is part and parcel of your calling and your work in our lives and that we can rest in the assurance that you are working out these things in our lives as we seek to walk in paths of righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.